Welcome back to Bible time. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 27. The word of God says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd honor your word, that you said in your word that you've honored above your name. I pray that you'd honor it today, honor the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that you'd come in power and that you would visit us even now with understanding, with conviction and convincing of our sin and of your righteousness and of the judgment to come, even as you said that your Holy Spirit would do. Father, we pray for this. We ask you, Lord, for the fullness of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name and the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Father, so that we can preach in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27, many people would look at this verse and be tempted to say, this is Paul's closing remarks of the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of the Thessalonians. And while that statement could have could be understood in a true way, that statement could also be understood in a false way. The reality is that while these are closing remarks of the Apostle Paul to the church of Thessalonians, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for exhortation and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto every good work. And so this word of God, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 27, is just as pure as 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. This word is just as pure as any other word of God in the Bible. There are not words of God that are more pure and words of God that are less pure. And we're going to see that here today as we look at this text. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Someone would say, why would God put that in the Bible? And the reason for that is really simple because God is God and he put what he wanted in his Bible. Now, there's also more reasons than that, but if you don't get that reason down, you're not getting any further. Well, one man would say to his son, his son comes up and his dad says, son, go get me a wrench. He says, why, dad? Well, that dad may explain it, and while there could be a case made that the dad needs to explain to his son why he needs to get the wrench, his dad needs to give his son education and training, and while that is true, that son is not going to get anywhere in life as long as he's always questioning his dad before obeying his dad. And until he learns to obey and to respect and honor his dad and the authority of his dad's word, he's not in any position to learn. Because his dad can tell him why till he's blue in the face. And until that boy recognizes the authority of his father to train him, he's not going to learn even if his dad explains. And so while you must explain to your children, and because I said so, is not going to keep your children, and it's not going to last very long if you just always tell your children, because I said so, because I said so, why do we go to church? Because I said so, it's not going to last. But on the other hand, and until your children learn to do things because you said so, they're not in a position to learn why you do those things. And so the first training that has to be done is the training to honor and respect the authority before you can get into the deeper understanding of why the authority made the decisions that it made. And so it is with the word of God. Until you come to God's word and receive it as it is in truth, like the Thessalonians did here, until you receive it as in truth, the word of 
of God there from 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, not as the word of men, but as the word of God until you come to the word of God and are willing, if God doesn't tell you why, to accept it because he said so, you're probably not going to get very far in the why. God's not going to teach you much until he teaches you to obey. He's not going to teach you much until he teaches you to honor and reverence his name and his word. The first lesson that you learn is obedience. The second lesson that you learn is why you were told to do what you were told to do. And if you get those two backwards, it's absolutely useless and you'll never get anywhere anyway. A charge here is a commandment that is given in an encouraging way. A charge is a commandment that would be given to someone who has already been proven to be obedient. Someone who has been proven to have accepted previous orders. So whereas a commandment would be given to a raw recruit in basic training, and they might say, Ten hut! And that recruit is expected to snap to attention and stand there and told otherwise. And he's commanded and those drill sergeants in basic training are renowned and known to be fairly mean and fairly rough and fairly authoritarian and totalitarian in the way they deal with those raw recruits. Later, when those raw recruits become non-commissioned officers and they're standing there with their captain and they're about to go into conflict, that captain, instead of barking orders at them, will most of the time give them an encouraging command. No less authoritative than the commands they received in basic training, but now the whole tone of the command has changed. The tone has shifted from raw authority. Now it is an encouraging tone with the same authority behind it so that the troops will be encouraged and motivated to charge forward. Back in first Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. This basic understanding that the Thessalonican church had that the word of God was indeed the word of God is what enabled the Apostle Paul all throughout the letters to the Thessalonian church to constantly give them charges and encouragements and to build them up in their most precious faith as brethren. We find that when Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, that the church at Corinth with all of their wealth and all of their power and with so little persecution and so much carnality, with so many good Bible teachers like Apollos coming through their churches and preaching revival meetings and all this, that the church at Corinth had to be rebuked sharply and that Paul had to defend his authority and Paul had to constantly remind them that he was an apostle. And we find more in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians about Paul's apostolic authority than we find in all the rest of the epistles put together. If you combine 1 and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, another renegade church that had fallen aside to Judaizers in the keeping of the law, you find the bulk and almost the entire totality of Paul's explanations of his authority as an apostle. 
to those two renegade churches, but to the churches that were following, to the churches that were marching, to the churches that were in step with the apostle and following the word of God in obedience. To these, he gives charges. To these, he gives encouragement. To these, he reestablishes and affirms their equality as brethren. Here in 1 Thessalonians, we find that the apostle Paul starts out the epistle with the single word, Paul. He doesn't say an apostle. He doesn't say called to be an apostle. He doesn't say uh, the minister that God sent to bring you the gospel. He just calls himself just plain old Paul. And then immediately he follows with and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When a church is following the pastor, the pastor has has the ability to be much less authoritative. Whenever you go to a good pastor, when you find a good church with a good pastor who is rightly dividing the word of truth and trying to follow God, and yet you find that that pastor is constantly reaffirming his authority, it will give you a strong clue that his authority has been challenged in most of his ministry. And even if he's a good pastor, he may have to reaffirm and reestablish his authority incessantly, lest those that would rise up in the churches, the diatrophesis, would rise up and kick him out of the church and take over the church. And for the sheep's sake, even a good pastor may be compelled to regularly remind the church of the authority given to him by God to pastor. But when you find a good church and a good pastor, where the church is following God and receiving the preached word of God, you'll find a church where the pastor never has to say a word about his authority. He never has to reaffirm it. He just is able to do what he's been called to do, and he's free to do it. And many people make the mistake of assuming that the one is more humble than the other, when the reality is that the one has an obedient church and the other has a disobedient You say, how would it be a good church if it's disobedient? Corinth was a good church, but it was disobedient. Paul had to rebuke them. The evidence was that they repented and that they followed, but they had a hard time with it. And they had many rebukes. Thessalonica was a good church, but it was obedient. Paul charged it. That's the whole point of what we're talking about here today. And that's why Paul said to the church at Corinth, what would you that I would come with a sword? He says, do you want me to come with a sword? Do you want me to use my authority? Are you, are you trying to force my hand? And they, if they would have really listened to Paul, they could have remembered Acts 13, where Paul told Elamis the sorcerer, thou shalt be blind not seeing the sun, and a mist of darkness fell upon him. And they could remember Peter and Ananias and Sapphira, how Peter said that they would die and they died. And here Paul is saying, do, are you going to make me exercise the full extent of my authority or will you just follow my lead? I don't want to come with a sword. I don't want to come with a rod. But for Christ's sake, Paul was saying he would. And it's the same Paul that wrote the epistle to the Thessalonians that wrote the, the epistles to first and second, the first and second epistles to the Corinthians. How about that? 
Same Paul. The difference was the obedience of the churches, not the apostle that was preaching. Same apostle, different churches, therefore different methods. Every church is different and every church needs to be treated differently and only the Spirit of God can give the wisdom that's required to do that. That's why God raises up different preachers for different churches. One preacher that's really mild-mannered might not ever be able to survive a year and a half at a church that God sends a battle axe preacher to. Some churches it takes a battle axe and a chainsaw. Other churches you can lead them with with just something as light as a feather. And that's just reality. It's just the way it is. So here, Paul's apostolic authority that he had as he gave this charge was not limited to a certain time or place. Paul's apostolic authority as being one chosen by Christ as one born out of due time, he says, I believe in the letter to the church of the Galatians. But he says, as one born out of due time, Christ selected Paul on the road to Damascus. And I'm I'm really leery of people that say that they saw Jesus in the sky and he talked to them. Listen, I want to mind my business and I don't want to go around trying to correct everybody, but I'd just be really careful of that. If God did it, then more power to them, but be really careful of that, especially if they're going to try and start using it to exert authority. Paul was not only picked by Christ on the road to Damascus, but Paul was also an eyewitness of Christ's ministry, but as an enemy. One of the most amazing studies, study it out sometime, look at it. Here, Judas walked with Christ, did miracles in the name of Christ, and he went to hell as the betrayer of Christ. And Jesus said it were good for that man if he'd never been born. Paul the apostle would not follow Christ, rejected apparently even the baptism of John, rejected everything to do with the gospel, and attacked the church, and yet Jesus Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, converted him. Boy, if anybody's ever been converted by force, it's Paul. If anybody's ever been converted against his will, it's Paul. He did not have any desire to turn to God, no intention to turn to God. And Jesus Christ appeared to him and bam, put him on the ground converted him and sent him out as an apostle. And that's why he said, I who am the chiefest of sinners. He said, how be it? I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And by the way, he was not saying that he was continuing to live and do the things that made him the chiefest of sinners. Those were in the past and he'd done them ignorantly in unbelief. And that's just the context of that verse. You can make the applications as needed. But Paul there, Paul the apostle, was an apostle. He was an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Christ from the baptism of John all the way up to his, uh, to his um, resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul had seen the evidence. The apostle Paul had doubtless heard the soldiers tell the high priests that he was risen and then was part of the council that paid the soldiers to lie. That's how dedicated Paul was against the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God had chosen Paul and made him an apostle. And Paul's apostolic authority extends to this day. By the way, if somebody asks you if your church has apostles, if your church holds the very word of God as the word of God and obeys it, your church is obeying the apostles and has the apostles. This is very important, by the way. We're not going to get into it deep today. We're not talking about apostles. We did that particularly. I have a note here somewhere to give you the the reference. 
back to that message. That would be in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6. We did a message there where it talks about as the apostles of Christ, you can go back and study apostles with us there and get much more scripture about uh, um, apostolic succession and etc. But there is no scripture for apostolic succession. That's succession, not secession which would mean um, the ceasing of apostles. What I'm saying is there is no scriptural authority for apostles to succeed one another in their office. There is no 50th apostle of the order of Paul. There is no such thing. There is no 30th apostle of the order of Peter. And however you want to line that up and put that up, it does not exist in God's economy, only in man's economy. Such that would claim it are false apostles and they're liars. They did not walk with Christ. They did not see Christ. They were not eyewitnesses of Christ. They are disqualified and cannot be numbered amongst the 12 or be considered to have the same authority or power as those of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the book of Revelation limits the apostles of the Lamb to 12 clearly and explicitly saying that there are 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, if this rankles you for any reason, if you want to know what is this guy really saying, I don't think he was hard enough. I think he was too hard. I encourage you to go back and look at that verse and that scripture and that study that we did in 1 Thessalonians 2.6 and we'll give you a whole lot more scripture about it. But we're moving on here. There is no succession of apostolic position of the apostle of the Lamb. And that is the word of God that ratifies that and verifies that. Go to First Peter, Second Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Here we're going. I'm appealing here as I do this scriptural study to the Apostle Peter. So I'm bringing you back to the foot of an Apostle of the Lamb, and you are getting apostolic truth today from the Word of God. In fact, it's apostolic prophecy that you're getting right here from the Word of God in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Some people say, no, no, you're cheating. You're, that's not really apostolic prophecy. It is according to God's Word. And if you want something more than God's Word, you've already taken the first giant step towards heresy and the cults. First, 2 Peter chapter 1 and um, verse 16 would be the wrong one. I'm in, I'm in first Peter. There we go. Second Peter chapter one and verse 16 here. Peter said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were I witnesses of his majesty here. The apostles speaking of the time that he and James and John went up on the Mount of transfiguration and saw Jesus Christ transfigured before their eyes. He says, we have made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were I witnesses of his majesty. By the way, Jesus said there in that passage, he said that there are many of you, there are some of you standing here which shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Why did he say some of them? Rabbit, rabbit alert. We're on a rabbit trail, but we're going to shoot it real quick. Why did he say that some of them would see the power of God come with, um, come in power and not taste death? It was not because um, he was coming back in 70 AD or something like that. That's not what he was talking about. If you keep reading in the gospels, the very 
very next thing that happens is the Mount of Transfiguration. And some of them, that is Peter, James, and John, saw the kingdom of God come with power. And here is what Peter refers to here. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You say, but wait, as Christ hasn't come back yet and he hadn't gone away yet, so how could he come back yet? They did it at God did it, and God did it out of time, and that's why Moses and Elias were standing there talking to Jesus. What they saw there on the Mount of Transfiguration was the glorified Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in his kingdom with Moses and Elias standing next to him getting marching orders. That wasn't just a smoke and mirrors show. They saw the kingdom of God come in power, literally, with their own eyes. God did a time, a break in time, and God advanced the time and showed them and then took them back to where they were. All these time traveler people just need to read the Bible. God's in control of time, and the Bible's so much better than all that junk out there. <coughs> because it's true. And all the rest of that stuff's fiction. So here Peter says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The apostle Peter saw the glorified Christ. He saw the resurrected Moses before the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Elijah. Now, of course, both those, their bodies were not laying. Moses died and was buried, but Elijah did not. He was taken up in a whirlwind. We'll leave that rabbit about the chariot and the whirlwind up. But which was it anyway? Was he taken up in a chariot or a whirlwind? We'll let you figure that out when you read it next time. Now, verse 18, and this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. So Peter heard the voice. He saw Christ. And look at verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Some of you say, you've preached this before. Yeah, and I'm going to preach it again, Lord willing, till the day I die. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He's saying more sure than Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, more sure than hearing the voice from heaven and seeing Christ transfigured with my own eyes. He says, more sure than that is the word of prophecy that we have today, the Bible. He says, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day, day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. By the way, some of these Bibles today would call that day, that day star name, the morning star to Lucifer. You better be careful which Bible you're reading. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, he says, is of any private interpretation. So here Peter brings the scriptures up to a higher level than any witness of eyewitness accounts or audible voices that you might hear. You might tell me, I saw Jesus. You might tell me, I heard a voice from heaven. You might tell me an angel appeared to me. But Peter said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. You say, I can't be mistaken. I can't be mistaken. And yet you've messed up your bills. You've messed up your bank account. You've messed up some of you, your marriages. And I'm not trying to be mean. You messed up your relationship there when you were dating that girl back in high school. You've messed up your car. You've wrecked your car before because you 
thought you saw something a certain way. You thought you heard a siren. You thought you heard that. You thought somebody said this. You've messed up your job before because you thought the boss said this, but the vision you saw, that's infallible. The vision that you saw is inspired and divine and and an extra revelation that goes beyond any ability of any human being to question it. And you're going to go to eternity resting all of your hope in your vision, in your eyes, in your ears, in your feelings. The Bible says that he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. That's what the Bible says. But the wise shall be delivered. And the Bible says, the word of God says, God says we have a more sure word of prophecy. And it says the prophecy of the scripture is not of any private interpretation. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here we're being charged by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians to read the epistle. Literally, read your Bible. That's what he's literally saying. You're being commanded, read your Bible in 1 Thessalonians 5.27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. Now there in 2 Peter, the very next verse in chapter 2 verse 1 says, But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. I remember I shared this with a dear Catholic lady once. And oh, how well God used it to open her eyes. The apostle Peter said there'll be false church. There'll be false prophets among you. And he said it to his churches. The apostle Peter who the Catholic Church claims to be the first pope erroneously, and they have no foundation scripturally for that, only tradition and the lies of so-called church fathers, but they claim Peter is their first apostle and their first pope. And here Peter said, amongst you there will be false, po- uh, false prophets and false teachers who shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. And I showed her that Peter himself prophesied that inside the church, from within the church, would come false prophets and damnable heresies and the denial of the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. Her eyes were gloriously opened and she stopped trusting in men and began trusting in Christ. And within a short period of time, that very week, she turned from dumb idols to serve the living God and laid aside the host and laid aside all of her traditions of Catholic idolatry and turned to Jesus Christ alone for salvation salvation. Praise the Lord. False prophets deny scriptural authority. Here it's no accident that Peter tells us we have a more sure word of prophecy and then immediately dives into a dissertation, an entire chapter long out of his short book of 2 Peter that is only three chapters long. A full third of his epistle is about false prophets and in context it immediately follows his exposition of the more sure word of prophecy or his prophecy I should say. It wasn't an exposition. That's more of what I'm doing. What he did was prophesy that there's a more sure word of prophecy. And his prophecy was scripture, by the way. 
False prophets deny scriptural authority. False prophets sidestep scriptural authority. They overlook scriptural authority. They ignore scriptural authority. They contradict scriptural authority. False prophets correct the Bible. A better translation would be this. What it should say here is this. I think that what this really means is this. False prophets rewrite the Bible and put out whole new Bibles, wholly rewritten Bibles. There's one man who's going to have to answer for to God. He took the King James Bible, and I couldn't believe this when I opened the Bible. He, I got one mailed to me. It was this special edition King James Bible. I was like, whoa, a King James Bible. At least it's a King James Bible. And I wasn't sure about the guy on the front. He's got a reputation for some real sin. Um, he's really done some things in his life, but I don't know hardly anything about him. And I just open up the Bible, say, okay, what, what's this thing doing here? And in the text, they had the word of God was black letters, and then they would stop in the middle of a verse and insert in line commentary from this big preacher, big TV preacher. And his commentary was in red words in, this, in the middle of the verse. So you would read, for example, on the Sermon of the Mount, it might say something. I'm, I can't give you an exact because... I got rid of that Bible, but I can't, but it says something, it would be something like this. And seeing the multitudes here in this text, the multitudes refers to such and such word in the Greek. And we can derive from that, that this means this. And that means that he went up into the mountain. The mountain here would probably be this mountain in this place. And in direct line with no breaks other than a change of textual color, this man had put his own commentary. That man's going to answer to God. That's a serious thing to do. He just messed with the word of God. He put his words in there like they were on equal ground with the word of God. And he's going to have to stand and give an answer to God. False prophets think that they have equal revelation to Peter. False prophets think that they have equal revelation to the holy men of God of old. And that is a lie. You say, you don't believe in prophets. I absolutely believe in prophets. And you can look up the hashtag prophets and find every verse from STEM Ministries on prophecy and every one that I've ever preached on. And there's a few out there already and there'll be more. And you can see that I do believe in prophets and you can study out how I, um, what I give you of the scriptures that deal with prophets. But there are no prophets who can give you a more sure word of prophecy because God has already finished his book. And we studied that and warned them that are unruly. Go look it up. Get more details. <coughs> False prophets rewrite the Bible. <coughs> they bury the Bible in prolix. What is prolix? We learned that word from an author recently. And his, his writing was so wordy, we were struggling through the book. And then he's complained about some other authors that had a lot of prolix. And we didn't know what that word was. We looked it up and it meant useless wordiness. We were all about to roll on the floor laughing because the man that taught us what prolix meant had a lot of prolix. And he was comparing his work to others who he thought had prolix. Anyway, false prophets bury the scriptures in prolix. Useless, vain words. Extra explanations with which they explain away the word of God. Second Peter 2.18 there says... 
For when they speak great, swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. What does that mean? Great swelling words of vanity. That would be prolix. Great, big, empty words. Lots of words. Loud words. Big words. But all, and listen, there's nothing wrong with big words and educated words that have specific meanings if you're using them well and accurately. But if you're just using a bunch of big fancy words to sound smart, it's worse than worse. It's great swelling words of vanity. And false prophets love them. False prophets love prolix. They love to puff up the Bible with all of their commentary. Just like that man had done that I just told you about. He puffed up the Bible with all of his commentary until nobody could read that Bible and really get the Bible. They would just get that man's opinions with a little bit of Bible scattered through like salt on the eggs. Explain away, they explain away the Bible. The false prophets exegetically evaporate the Bible. What does that mean? They get down into the nitty gritty of the Greek and the Hebrew and the tenses and they take the meaning out of the word of God. Ever seen evaporated milk? Who wants to sit down and drink a glass of evaporated milk? They take it down. That's what we've got today. We've got a bunch of evaporated milk. We've got a bunch of sweetened condensed milk where they take it down and they strip it of its meaning. They strip it of everything alive in it and they put it in a can and they sell it and it'll keep on the shelf for two years. Did you know that milk is not designed by God to last two years? If your milk lasts two weeks in your fridge, you probably are not drinking milk. It's been so chemically altered, it doesn't deserve the name milk. It's been heated. It's been killed. We're not going to get off on all that. Anyway, we're drinking evaporated milk in this day. They exegetically evaporate it. They go into all these details deep down until they can literally just parse and snip away at the word of God until it has no power and no life left in it. They take it down and dissect it in front of you until it's dead and laying there lifeless and you're aware of the parts of speech. You're aware of the tenses. You know everything that there is to know about um, all of the adverbs and nouns and adjectives, but you know nothing about what God was actually saying. False prophets also etymologically eviscerate the word. What does that mean? Etymology is the study of the history of the word, and to eviscerate is to slice and dice. So what they do is they go into the history of words, and they say, this word in its root comes from this word. So the word such and such, and they do this, they'll do it with agape, they do it with all these words. And they say, this word in the English comes from this Greek word that comes from this Greek word. And this Greek word comes from two different Greek words that have roots in these kinds of words. And these kinds of words were used by this poet. They were used by this historian. It was used over here in this ancient text. A church father interpreted it this way. This church father interpreted it that way. And a modern theologian thinks this about this word. And the way that this word was used could implicate this. And it could identify that, And by the time they get done with the history of the word, you don't even know what word was used anymore. And you're so turned around that I have literally sat and listened to preachers in a half hour, take a scripture and flip it and have a, they listen, stand up and read a scripture to the church and the church say, you can hear a couple people say, amen. 
30 minutes later, he's telling the church his own interpretation of that verse that is 100% diametrically opposite of what God actually says in his word. And the whole church is clapping and saying, amen. And they think they've really learned something that day. That is to etymologically eviscerate and exegetically evaporate the word of God. And we used big words because they do. And you need to know that when you hear their big words, it doesn't mean anything. Just because somebody has big words doesn't mean they're smart. By the way, just because they speak monosyllabically doesn't mean that they're smart either. It's no more holy to be ignorant than it is to be erudite. All that matters is that you stick to the word of God. The word of God is what matters. Then false prophets contextualize away the scriptures. Oh, that Old Testament, that doesn't count for us today. Well, the, it's not just the Old Testament. The gospels were preached to the Jew, and those apply to the Jew. But then the book of Acts, well, well, that was also to the Jew until you get to Acts chapter 10. So really, until you get to Acts chapter 10, that doesn't count. And someone will say, well, Acts 8, that was a eunuch, and he was an Ethiopian, so God was kind of cutting him early. So you can start counting in Acts chapter eight. And then they'll say, so now you can go on through Romans because they're Gentiles and you can go on down till you get to Hebrews. But once you hit Hebrews, now we're dealing with a whole nother people because these are the Hebrews, which they are, by the way, they're right about this stuff, but they're wrong about their application. And they say, so the Hebrews are the Jewish people. So that book doesn't apply to you. And then first and second, Peter, Peter here, he's addressing the, the church that is at Babylon, but he's also the apostle to the Jews. And we know that God made him the apostle to the Jews. So Peter doesn't really apply to you. And they just go right on down through the Bible. And by the time they're left with it, by the time you get done with it, and by the way, these are fundamental evangelicals that do this out there. Not all, there's some good fundamental evangelicals out there, but there's a whole lot of them that do this. And by the time they're done with the Bible, you don't have enough scripture left to fill a standard newspaper much less to carry under your arm into the church house because none of it applies to you. And then there's those that go to the other side of it and they don't look at the context at all and they won't take the word of God in its context. They wrest the scriptures out of its context, twist the Bible and make it say things that it doesn't say. Peter talked about that. We're right there in second Peter. Go to chapter three. He says down here in verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking of Paul, speaking in them of these things, which in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. He wasn't saying unlearned in the affairs of men. He was talking about men who are unlearned in the scriptures. Did you know that you can have 17 degrees from 27 different um, institutions? or flip it around and do it the other way. 27 degrees from 17 institutions with the best reputations in the whole world in 23 different languages and know nothing about the word of God. You can have every theological mastery degree and advancement and honor that man can give you and be unlearned and unstable in the word of God. Because you have not gone to the word of God and you have rested the scriptures to your own destruction and you know theology, but you don't know theos, which is God. You've got the ology, but not the theos. 
This epistle is the next part that we want to focus in here. We've looked at the charge. We've looked at the charge to read the word, the charge to love the word, the exhortation given in encouragement, the exhortation given to an obedient people that have already received the word of God as it is in truth, as the word of God and not as the word of men. But here, let's, let's zoom in on this epistle. Here he's not talking about the book of the Maccabees. He's not talking about the book of Judas. He's talking about this epistle. God said this one. Now this tells you that God is very specific about what God calls his word. And we dealt with this in warn them that are unruly. And we talked about the canonization of the word of God. The Bible, the canonization of the Bible means which books of the Bible are really books of the Bible. And that word is useful because you can say canonization instead of giving a long list of explanations of what it means once you know it. But if you think it makes you sound smart and makes you holy to know what canonization is, you got a problem. So let's balance that thing. Canonization of the scriptures means which books of the Bible are really books of the Bible. How do you know that these 66 books of the Bible belong in it? How do you know that Esther should really be in the Bible? How do you know that Daniel should really be in the Bible? How do you know that Jude should really be in the Bible? How do you know, um, Dr. Martin Luther, that James should really be in the Bible? The illustrious doctor tore it out of his Bible later. He got right with God and repented and put it back in his Bible. But at first, because he, he because he could not grasp what James was teaching. He just tore the whole thing out of his Bible and he figured it was spurious and he threw it in the trash. You got to watch out for doctors and theologians. God used that one. Praise God. He used Martin Luther and I thank God for that. But the more higher learning a man gets, the more likely he is to lean on his higher learning instead of God. We looked at in a, a couple days ago in Brethren Pray For Us, uh, I read some stats there of 69% of people considered poor in the United States of America read, if they read a Bible, they read the King James Bible, the very word of God. 44% that read a Bible over, over what would be considered up into middle class, where you're starting to really get into a wealthier level of living, over um, 44% of these use the King James Bible if they read a Bible. Well, 31% of American Bible readers used the King James. 72% that didn't finish high school stick with the King James Bible, primarily. Well, as 33% with graduate degrees leave the King James Bible. Why is that? Well, because they're so smart that they, that they know that they don't really need the King James Bible and it's got mistakes and all that. And you've got to go to school to be that stupid. You got to spend a lot of money and a lot of time learning from a bunch of fools before you can be that foolish. It takes a lot of work to be that stupid. And I say that with as much love as I can, trying not to get in the flesh about it. It'd be pretty easy to get in the flesh about. You know, people will spend millions of dollars on huge educational f um, facilities that will teach nothing but lies. You say, no, no, that's not true. It is true. Almost every educational facility on the face of the entire earth around the globe teaches nothing but lies. The vast majority of what they teach are lies. From the Muslim schools that deny Christ to the Catholic schools that deny Christ in practice while claiming him with their lips, to the Buddhist schools that deny Christ, to the American schools that deny Christ. 
from the lower education levels to the higher education levers, levels, almost every part of education in this world has been inclined against Christ and has been infused with the spirit of Antichrist and perceiving themselves to be wise, they have become fools and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's Romans chapter one. And the more time you spend in a godless education system that teaches you to not trust God, the less likely you are going to be to trust God. It's no wonder that the less educated people go to the word of God because they're more convinced by power and less by fancy words. By the way, the Bible was written on a fourth grade reading level. Some people have claimed a fifth grade reading level. Isn't that interesting? People say that King James Bible is too hard to understand, but it's the uneducated people who are the ones that cling to it and love it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And then they'd have all their excuses for that. But the King James Authorized Version Bible in English is the very Word of God. And God wants you to read it. God wants you to understand it. God wants you to read this epistle, not another epistle. God does not want you wasting your time with all the fake Bibles and all the fake junk. Some people say, well, I get a better understanding of the Bible whenever I read all the versions. That is a lie. That is nothing but hogwash. You get a diluted, perverted understanding of the Bible by reading all the diluted, perverted versions. You get a better understanding of men's opinions about the Bible, and you lose clarity of understanding of what God actually said in the Bible whenever you leave this epistle. Now, this epistle is in its direct context, speaking of 1 Thessalonians. (coughs) There's a couple other places in the Bible where we're given similar commandments. Go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, and I want to show you that this epistle does universally apply to the 66 completed finished works of God in the Bible that we have in English as the authorized version Bible, the King James Bible. It's not even really a version. It's just the straight translation of the Bible. The rest of them are perversions. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16 says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now we preached on that as well. That's up online. And we started Bible time in the middle of Colossians there. So that one's up. 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3 and verse 15. We've already looked at this verse, but I want you to look at it a different way than um, for and focus on a different part of it than we did previously. He says, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles. How many of his epistles? How many? All, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Here the apostle Peter said that Paul's writings were scripture. Now, God did not choose to preserve the epistle to Laodicea. 
And he gave us the completed word of God without that epistle. One man once asked me, what would you do if they uncovered the epistle to Laodicea and it contradicted what you believe and what the Bible says? And I would tell him, I would say, let God be true and every man a liar. The man nearly fell over. He couldn't believe that I would trust the Bible over a so-called ancient manuscript that got dug up. By the way, when was the last time somebody dug something up and lied about it? Oh, never. No, nobody ever does that. Nobody ever just digs something up and lies about it, ever. Did you know that Piltdown Man, if I remember it right, one of the famous cavemen that our modern people have forsaken God to worship, that was supposedly a transitional form between human and ape and the evolutionary scheme, that Pit, I think it was Piltdown Man, one of those, if not, if it wasn't that one, it was one of the near ones, but he was constructed from two teeth. If I remember right, you can check me out on it. If it was any more than that, maybe they had a tiny chunk of jawbone. Later, they studied it and found out it was a pig jawbone, but they would not acknowledge it and refuse to take it down, though it is a verifiable fact that they don't have anything but a couple pig teeth, and they've made up a whole creature. And you can go into the Smithsonian Museum you can in Washington, D.C., and you can stand there and look at a statue of Piltdown Man, and it will proclaim it as if it is fact that it is a real creature that really existed that they know for sure existed. And all they really have is a couple dirty old teeth they dug out of the dirt. And they made the whole lie up from a couple teeth. Happens all the time. I'm sticking with God. You can dig up whatever you want to dig up. I'm sticking with God. If you're a sucker for archaeological so-called evidence, help yourself. I'm sticking with God. Now, um, the Bible goes on in 2 Peter. He calls these scriptures, all these writings of the Apostle Paul's scriptures, um, 1 John Chapter 1 and verse 4, these things write we unto you, he says. Some people say, I believe in the living word of God. And they sound so spiritual. I believe in the living word of God. God's word is in heaven, seated at the right hand of Christ. And he ever liveth to make intercession for us. But we don't have the literal words of God on paper today. God is so much bigger than paper. He's a lot bigger than your brain, too. And he said... I that he wrote the words and he said that he would preserve the words lowercase w with an s at the end not the living word but the literal words by the way you can't separate the two forever O lord thy word is settled in heaven it says here in first john he says these things write we unto you. And look at chapter 2 and verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome Overcome the wicked one. The written word of God is as much part of the word of God as the word of God is part as of the written word of God. You cannot separate the two. Go to Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. I don't care if we get done on time or not. We're just going to keep plowing. 
Lord, help us today. Job chapter 23, I do care about your time that are here and those that will listen to this online, and I do not want to waste your time, but I do want to honor God and His Word. Job chapter 23 and verse 12, he says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. A lot of people really like to throw Job into the mix here because Job is considered the oldest written account uh, in the Bible, preserved by God in the Bible. It's supposed to predate the works of Moses when it was actually written down. Though the events in Moses' five books predate the book of Job, or at least part of them do, Job is considered to be the oldest existing book, like they really know anyway. Who made these guys so smart that they know all this stuff? This stuff happened 6,000 years ago. Have you ever noticed that if you read the history of the Revolutionary War from an English textbook and from an American textbook, it comes out completely different? Man's word does not last and is not preserved, but God's word does. You know, people say it's impossible that that book would survive without error for 6,000 years. There's no way that that history can be accurate about things that happened 6,000 years ago. And they're right, except it be that God did it. But isn't it an irony that they think that their so-called scientists can extrapolate a history back 300 million, 5 billion or more years and it be accurate and they trust it as if it's God's word. Isn't this amazing, the hypocrisy that we enter into? And they'll take some theologians' comments about the Bible and about how old the Bible is, and they'll take that like it's fact. And they will say, well, the Bible can't really be true because Mr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so said this. And they're trusting somebody else's word. Isn't that an ironic reality? exposes our foolishness. Job here, he said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Question, did Job have a Bible? Oh, no, 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 no. Job didn't have a Bible. There's no way Job could have a Bible. Go to Job chapter 19. Here, Job, not even knowing what he, that he was prophesying when he prayed, prophesies. And he says in chapter 19, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. You say printing wasn't invented till the 1500s. That's when we know about modern printing. But here Job said that he wished that his words were written and printed in a book. Job supposedly lived sometime after the flood, before the time of Abraham. And here he knew about books and he knew about printing. He says that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. That's New Testament doctrine. How did Job know this? He says, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job knew this because Job had books. And in those books were preserved words of God that were carried forward in the other books like the books of Moses that then we have today. Moses did not author everything that was written down there. Some of it he copied. There's some people that estimate that there were, as I can't remember, as many as 40 different authors had a part in the Pentateuch. I don't know. What do they know anyway? 
What do they know anyway? Listen to me. The reality is they had books. Job had books. Job knew about books. Job wanted his words written in a book and God preserved them in the holy word of God. And Job knew God and Job knew about God and Job loved the words of God. And the indication is clear that Job had the words of God. You say, we don't have preserved writings from that time of history. There's a lot we don't have from that time of history, including most of the wisdom that those men had. We are getting dumber every year. This idea of evolution really fits the idea of secular humanism. Hmm, I wonder why. Because man's morality dictates his theology, that's why. And these evolutionists out here say we're getting better and better and better, and we're going to ascend into some higher state of being. And God says man is getting worse and worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, evil men and seducers waxing worse and worse. And then in the last days that men will be willingly ignorant. They will make a conscious choice to deny raw reality and scientific fact and choose to disapprove and disbelieve the creation of the world and the flood that destroyed the old world, which evidence is clearly seen all over this world. And God prophesied that men would do that. Men is getting stupider and stupider, but you're going to believe stupid, foolish men who deny and defy the word of the living God. Who's smarter, the uneducated man who plows his field and tends his pigs and gets down on his knees and reads the authorized version Bible and receives it as the very word of God? Or the man that drives his Mercedes Benz or Lexus sports coupe to his four-story mansion on the lake and he walks in there eating caviar and drinking wine and plops down on the couch to watch a documentary about the retarded, ridiculous claims that the Bible's the word of God and sits there nodding with all of his erudite knowledge as these professors get on and deny that God could or would preserve his word. Who's really smarter? God will show you in the judgment. God will show you in the judgment. You'll find out someday. If you're too foolish to turn today, 2 Peter 2 and verse 6 calls Jesus Christ the rock, the, the cornerstone. And Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. Jesus is the rock that the water came from. The Bible says that that was Jesus that followed them in the wilderness. When Moses struck the rock and water came out, that was Christ being struck and the word of God flowing from his stricken body to save us from our sins. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, being born again, not of corruption, seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. And Job said, oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Hallelujah. This Bible's preserved because it is graven in the rock. Jesus is the rock. Ezra was called in Nehemiah chapter 8, bring the book, bring the book. And God's people read the book, obeyed the book, believed the book, and God blessed them as they obeyed the book. Josiah's men found the book in 2 Kings chapter 22 verse 8. And in verse 11 and 16, you find references of what they did with the book and how a great revival came out of the book in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 2. Go ahead and turn there. God tells Jeremiah to write in a book. 
The Bible says, as you go into Jeremiah, that in heaven at the judgment, the books will be opened and another book is opened, which is the book of life. In this electronic day, everybody's doing away with written books. Everybody's throwing them away. And there's a reason for that. The devil hates written books. There's something about a written book that is different from anything else. It cannot be edited without making it obvious that you edited it. Do you hear me? If you edit a written book, it's obvious that it's been edited. All these older manuscripts that the new perversions are taken from are from manuscripts that have been so obviously edited and chopped up and notes all over them of men that are perverse minds that deny the Bible and deny the truth, and yet they're used and claimed to be more accurate than the manuscript evidence in its great body that has been passed down from generation to generation by the churches. So here, a book is not easily edited. A book is not easily found. A book is not easily rounded up. All of these electronic Bibles, electronic copies can be shut down with the flip of a switch. They can be edited with a little algorithm that's punched in in code and sent through the computer and with enough authority to get past all the SSL and all that other stuff, all the security levels. And when they do that, they can edit whatever they want to edit with the flip of a switch with the push of a button. Not so with a book. And God said, write it in a book. Jeremiah chapter 30, thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. You say, is it wrong to read the Bible on the internet? Not wrong, but not necessarily too smart. You ought to have a physical copy of the word of God. And if you don't, you're in for a deception coming your way pretty easy. You need to get a a verifiable copy of the authorized version Bible in your hands and get it quick before they outlaw the thing because they hate that book. Um, A article came up as I was looking up that research on the King James Bible about who reads it and stuff. An article came up from from a Methodist source that claimed to be Methodist and said four reasons you should not read the King James Bible. Yeah, because if you read the King James Bible, you cannot be a Methodist. That's why. Amen. I have a dear Methodist friend who's gone to a Methodist church her whole life. I went over to her house to see her and and she wasn't there. I talked to her son about the great white throne of judgment and read him the passage in the Bible, asked him if his sins were paid for, asked him if he was a sinner. He knew nothing of the gospel, nothing. I went back to see her again and she reproached me for scaring her son and sat there telling me how much she loved Jesus. My dear friend, if you ever hear this, I'm leaving you a name, but if you hear this, my dear friend, you have lied to yourself. You do not love Jesus because you do not love his word and you show your fruit. You show what you really are. You love false prophets and false prophecies and tickling words that just tickle your fancy and let you go on and live in complete rebellion to God and his word. And I love you, and I tried to share that with you, but you wouldn't let me get anywhere with you, and I will if you give me another chance. So here, the, because God's word is settled in heaven, it is also preserved on earth. We find that in the word of God. It is the fact that it is settled in heaven that makes it impossible to eradicate on earth. God said whatsoever to the church, the, not to Peter, by the way, but to his church and to Peter. He says, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And God relates the two. The two are related. The word of God is preserved on earth because it is preserved in heaven. If it was up to men to preserve God's word, it would not have happened, could not have happened. It is impossible. 
absolutely impossible for the Word of God to exist today, humanly speaking. It is a miracle that the Word of God exists, and all these people running after miracles. Run after miracles, signs, lying wonders, and they want to see something fancy. And they pass by a thousand bookstores with copies of the authorized version Bible, the perfectly preserved, very divine, inspired word of God, and they won't even look at it. And they want to go see somebody's leg grow. They won't even open the very divine word of God. What a foolish generation that we live in today. Jeremiah chapter 30 there, and I lost the passage I was going to go to. Maybe the Lord would have us skip it. Lord, help me to know. But there, I meant to write it down, and I wrote down 30 verse 2 both times. But Jeremiah later would be commanded by God to write a book again. And this book that he wrote, he had Barak, the son of Neriah, take it up to the king. If you remember that, later in the book of Jeremiah. And over and over again through that chapter, it talks about the book, the book, the book, the book, and the book that Jeremiah wrote, and how that these people read the book, and how God's power went with the book, and how God's God's people defied the book. And finally, the king burnt the book. That's Jeremiah 36. And down there in verse 23, it says, And it came to pass that when Jehud had read three or four leaves, leaves, three or four leaves, paper with ink on it, the book, God's word. And God is going to hold them accountable for what they did to the paper with ink on it. He says here, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the, on the hearth. Yet were they not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. They thought a man wrote them. They thought it was spurious. They thought it was opinion, but God judged them for denying his word. Your opinion doesn't count. Here the Bible says in verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. And then the Bible tells us that Jeremiah did it in verse 32, And there were added besides unto them many like words, which the Bible tells us were inspired by God. So here, while well, Barak the king, or I'm sorry, not Barak, Barak was the man who took it. Well, well, the king burned the roll. God had Jeremiah rewrite the roll word for word. Now I'd like you to, you can ask me, if I could take the sermon that I'm preaching right now, and write it out perfectly word for word after I'm done preaching it. Not going to happen. I'm telling you, God's word is a miracle. God's word is divine. God's word is from heaven. And because it's settled in heaven, it's settled on earth, and it will never be altered until God finishes this whole world, and then I'm off and burns it up. And I don't know what God will do with it exactly yet, but it'll still be in heaven. Now, in Ecclesiastes, he says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. You can burn the Bible, you can ban it, you can bury it, you can corrupt it, you can slander it, but you will never, ever, ever destroy it because God says that what he does, it shall be forever. The word of the Lord endureth forever. The words of the Lord are pure words. Thou wilt keep them, O Lord, from this generation forever. These people had a book You say, man, you've beat that dead horse. I wish it was a dead horse. 
It ought to be a dead horse. God inspired and preserved his words in books written on pages with ink. The Bible, God's word, a divine miracle, a living book, dead in its appearance, alive in its spiritual reality. Now we get to move on. Here he says that this book be read unto all the holy brethren. Now, at this time that this was written, illiteracy was normal. Again, beware of those that would culturalize away the Bible. That doesn't apply in our culture. That doesn't apply because we're Americans. Beware of that kind of a prophet. He's a false prophet. Now, we, by the way, this false prophet stuff, we're all prone to do it whenever we don't like something in the Bible. Beware lest you do some of it. The difference between a false prophet and an erring Christian is that the erring Christian is chastened back to God while the false prophet goes on and makes his living off his lies. That's the difference. Because we're all prone to do this. You are to check out the word of God every time you hear it preached. You should be checking the scripture yourself to make sure you're not being lied to. No matter how good your pastor is, no matter how much you love him and how much you respect him, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar and every man is. There's never been a man alive who hasn't lied at least once in their life. God wants you to read the Bible. Here it says that it should be read. This epistle should be read unto all the holy brethren. God wants everybody that names the name of Christ to read the Bible. We've already established that this epistle means specifically 1 Thessalonians, but it applies in its, in its greater application to all of the scripture, the 66 finished completed word books of the Bible. God's words. God wants you to read the Bible. Do not try to call yourself a Christian if you don't love God's word. Phony Bibles often indicate phony Christians. Now you got to have some care here. Because a Christian can be a Christian and not know things, and it might take time for God to reveal them to him. So don't look at somebody and say, you've got an NIV, you're a devil worshiper. He might be a devil worshiper because devil worshipers are the ones that put out the NIV, and that book is a book out of hell. The NIV is a satanic perversion of the word of God. If you've got one, burn it and don't apologize about it and get yourself a real Bible. But if you're a Christian, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're born again by the power of God, and you haven't found that, you haven't seen it yet, you're still studying, you're still searching, that is a very possible scenario, but God will bring you out. It is possible for a Christian to be backslidden, and I'm not going to get into it because we don't have time. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 3 and Jeremiah 10, 21, Jeremiah 3, 12 through 15, Jeremiah 10, 21. Look at pastors that are brutish versus pastors after God's heart. Look at how if you return to God, God will give you pastors after his own heart. When you, your city, your state, your nation turns back to God. Now, you cannot live if you're a Christian without God's word. If you never loved God's word, you were never born again. If you can just as well take it or leave it with the word of God. You ain't saved, period. Full stop. End of story. If you never loved God's word, you were never saved. Go to Jeremiah 15. We're going to look at a couple verses here. Jeremiah 15. You say, you're not saved by the Bible. You're saved. What are you saved by then? Faith. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you cannot have faith without having the word of God. Now be careful. Keep it balanced. Or you'll go out there and say that somebody can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ without a King James Bible. And that ain't true either. 
They can. But if they do not love the word of God, they're not saved. Jeremiah 15 verse 16, or if they never did, I should say. Jeremiah says, thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, he says that we as newborn babes should desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. God wants you to desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. That's God's will for you to desire that sincere milk. And he calls you a newborn babe. You must be born again. Jesus said a baby cannot live without milk. And if you want to tell me somebody has been born again and has new life in them and they do not want God's word, you are lying to yourself and lying to them. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. In Luke 4, 4, he said it there as well. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is life. Jesus is our all and in all. You cannot separate the capital W word of God from the lowercase w word of God. They're both of God and they both come from the same source. The lowercase w comes out the mouth of the uppercase w. And if you say that he's, that those words are spurious, then you call the uppercase w spurious. Because the living word of God speaks the very word of God and preserves the very word of God. A man is only as good as his word. Oh, I know you guys don't buy into that these days. In this day of infidelity, in this day of liars everywhere that don't believe in the truth at all. It's no wonder that you don't think that God keeps his word because you can't abide a God that keeps his word. You're a pack of liars out there today. Such a group, such, such a group of liars, such a conglomeration of liars this world has never seen in the sheer number and volume of liars today. Lie with impunity. Lie without fear. Lie about everything all day long. He says unto all the holy brethren, he wants this book to be read, this epistle to be read unto all the holy brethren. Brethren indicates equality again. In Matthew 23 and verse 8, Jesus said, call no man your father upon earth. Call no man father upon earth. He says one is your father, even God. There in Ma Go ahead and go to Matthew 23. We're going to take the time today. I try to keep this within an hour. But this day we're over limit and we're going to keep going and we're going to finish this thing. Matthew 23, this by no means is an exhaustive study of this subject, but we're going to at least finish what God has given today to be given. Matthew 23 and verse 8. He says, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And he says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, 
for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And he goes on with all the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Anyone who would stand between you and the word of God is a false prophet and a liar. Anyone that tries to stand up and correct the Bible to you and alter what the Bible says through etymology, through exposition, through contextualization, and they're editing the Bible, not rightly dividing it. I'm not talking about that. You need to understand what words mean. You need to understand what the Bible's saying and rightly divide it. I'm not saying ignorant is holy, but anybody that stands up and tries to wrest the Bible from you through their intellectual superiority or through their religious miracles and wonders or their great powers or through their great traditions and long standing giant brick buildings and tall hats and gold everywhere. Whatever they use, if they try and take the Bible from you, they are of the spirit of antichrist they are not of god god desires that all the holy brethren read his holy book or have it read to them if they cannot read it themselves and the and the context here is with understanding you read it in latin to people that speak german and you're nothing but a wolf withholding the word of God. There is no such thing as a layman in God's economy. I was asked the other day if I was a lay preacher. No, I'm not. I'm a holy brethren. I'm a holy brethren. There's no such thing as a layman. That's a completely religious term that's been made up. It's not in the Bible. And there's no application for such a word in the Bible. There are saints in the Bible, and then there are offices in the Bible, and we are not getting into all that today. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, 6. Again, you can look up um, a lot of our teaching on apostles. Um, you've got Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. The five offices that Christ gave to the church, uh, we're not getting into all that today. Anyone who puts on superior airs and claims to have greater access to revelations and knowledge of God's word than the brethren should be tried against the scripture and found to be a liar. Now it is a reality that the Holy Spirit of God teaches and leads along his children. And God may teach you something in the word of God that other people around you don't see yet. That's not what I'm talking about if it's rightly divided. But anyone that goes outside beyond the bounds of scriptures to add to or cuts up the scriptures that you have, taking away from you the scriptures through contextualizing and dispensationalizing away the scriptures is of the wrong spirit. They're either a backslidden um, Christian or they may have, in some cases, a good preacher that God has allowed to be wrong about something to show you that he's just a man. But if they're making their living on it and going on unrepentantly and falsely dividing the word of truth for gain, they're a false prophet. He says that this epistle should be read to all the holy brethren. What's the short? We could sum up the whole message. You say, well, why didn't you do that to begin with? You didn't have to listen. Well, some of you did that are here that are mine. You can sum up this whole message. Read your Bible. God wants you to read your Bible. God gave you the perfect word of God so that you can know him yourself and have direct access to God without a priest or a pope. You and God. There's that old song, me and God, we've got a good thing going, and that man lied through his teeth is burning in hell today. You say, what if he repented? If he repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saved. It's highly unlikely that he did. But if he did, he's saved. But if he went on believing what he was believing, he's a liar and he's in hell. But God does want to have a good thing going with you. But it's going to be through the word of God. 
You're going to get to God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the flesh was manifested to us. And we have the very words of God, the more sure word of prophecy, what came out of Jesus's mouth, ministered to us by the spirit of Christ, the spirit of his son, the Bible calls the Holy Spirit, that is shed abroad in our hearts. God has given us his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if any man keep my commandments, we, the Father, will come unto him and we will make our abode with him. And he said, I will send the comforter. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost living inside of you and God's words in a book in front of you. You say, oh, I wish God would just speak to me. I've been praying and it just seems like I can't hear God. That's rough. I don't like that either. But what you need to do is get your old Bible out and open it up and hear God because it's right here in this book. Father, please honor this message by sending your power with it and convincing men of the truth of these words. Lord God, anywhere that I was out of balance or in error, rebuke it, Father, and make it evident to everyone that listens so that they can just spit that out, Father, and still get something good from the rest of it and not get hung up on it. Lord, if I knew I was wrong, I'd have changed it. Father, if there's anywhere that I'm wrong, please show me from your word. Your word is the final standard, the only way that we can know the difference between truth and error. We love you today and we worship you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this book. In Jesus' name, amen.